We are going to get started. We're going to start maybe a little early. We have a lot to cover. There's a lot of content in this. And I'm also going to uh, get started early enough to give you the opportunity, after I've described what we're going to study, uh, to choose another class if you decide. (laughs) Chris Hamilton and Nathan Buzenis both have some great sounding titles that I think I'm going to want to listen to later myself. But uh, the topic today, Jezebel, the life of Jezebel, a study in the violent and cynical perversion of truth, justice, and human rights. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us strength, give us receptive ears and minds. May we understand the word. May we remember that all scripture is God-breathed, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Father, may we remember that the word of God says that your word will go forth and it will accomplish what you have intended. We ask that even now, Father, we pray that you would be exalted and glorified in all that is done. Amen. And I would ask that you keep me in prayer quietly as we're going through this. It's neither here nor there, but I think I'm probably as fatigued as I ever have been. Uh, When teaching, we just returned from a brief trip to the Grand Canyon late Friday evening, and I was uh, studying most of the day yesterday. I want to thank my wife and my youngest son, Mike, uh, for giving me the time and allowing me to to be able to prepare. Mike helped me with the uh, slides, and uh, Anne basically gave me the time to be able to pull it together and encouraged me to do as much of it as I could. This, This is one of the last sessions of Sundays in July 2023. You saw the description in Friday's email. One of the most prominent villains in all of Scripture, Jezebel demonstrates the cynical perversion of both worship and government, the destruction of human rights, and the persecution of the godly. The seminar will examine how an evil ruler like Jezebel can set the stage for God's faithfulness to a remnant of his people. In keeping with that email, I've changed the approach I had originally intended. Uh, As it follows the order of the events in the text, I'm going to begin by giving you the key description in Scripture of the remnant, the godly remnant that has always existed and will continue to exist until the time of Christ's return. Then we'll move to the central passage that shows one of the aspects of God's sustaining grace for that remnant. It is a passage you may never have considered before, but it describes a judicial miscarriage, a total abortion of the legal process, and that is found in 1 Kings 21. Why study Jezebel? Uh, Some of you have wondered about that. I have to confess that at times I was uh, asking that question to myself as I was preparing this last week. It started about 2008. I was asked to speak at a conference in Uganda 
on God, law, and justice. And one of the topics, one of the two topics I was assigned was a biblical view of human rights. One of my colleagues assured me that there was no such thing, uh, but I looked again and again in Scripture. I found repeated examples of a biblical perspective on human rights. And one of the aspects of what we're going to see this morning uh, is a complete destruction of those human rights. And let me just make a parenthetical statement right at the outset that when government abandons the true God, the hope for legitimate human rights will inevitably go with it. It will inevitably be gone when the government does not realize that it is properly and fully accountable to Almighty God Himself. Why study Jezebel? To be encouraged and strengthened by God's omniscient sovereignty. As I'm going through this, I'm going to give you a roadmap as to where we're going. To be strengthened and made wiser in our understanding of man. Put another way, our biblical anthropology. You do not really fully understand your fellow man outside of the filter of the Word of God. Our biblical anthropology is always an extremely important reason to study the Scripture. To guard against the perversion of worship. In the event that I'm describing, Jezebel does exactly and precisely that. In the event that set the stage for that, she had done the same thing again and again in fostering and encouraging idolatry. To guard against the perversion of government... You'll see that take place twice in sequence in the life of Jezebel and in the life of her husband, her husband whom she effectively controlled and incited, uh, the Word of God says, to prostitute himself. Again and again, the passage reads, Ahab sold himself to do evil. One of those is actually a statement made to his face by the prophet Elijah. He perverted government. It shouldn't surprise us if we see that happen in our day and age. Justice can be perverted. You're going to see an example of that taking place that will nauseate you, or at least it should. Again, it should not surprise us when we see it happening in our age. The Scripture tells us that it can occur. God guards against it by the provisions that he has articulated. Those provisions were trampled upon and ignored. To better understand human rights, we've already started to cover that particular topic. To guard against the hardness of the human heart. As I was going through this, I was struck by the fact that Jezebel, and we'll see why, uh, third only in all of Scripture to Moses' Pharaoh, uh, and of course Judas, who had the privilege of spending three years with Christ, demonstrates a hardness of heart that is intriguing uh, and incredible. 
and you go through this, how on earth could she not have had a change? And last but not least, the gospel is implicitly present in this. The scripture tells us in Romans 10, quoting the prophet Joel, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The chief of sinners, by his own description, wrote those words. That would include Jezebel. It would also include Ahab. Paradoxically, we can say that they were not drawn. But uh, it does raise the the question in mind. Could they have been forgiven? At the outset, I'll tell you, they definitely could have been. And that may cause some of you to feel drawn to a point of trusting in Christ for your own personal salvation today. Now, in the Shepherds' Conference this this spring, our discussion was on shepherding the remnant. I did a a session uh, on shepherding the remnant when it has gone underground. I started off with a passage that helps us to define and understand who the remnant is. It had followed a period of intense persecution of the people of God by Ahab and by his wife Jezebel. They are without parallel in Scripture for their wickedness. There had been a wholesale slaughter by Jezebel of the prophets of God, we do not know the number that had been killed. First Kings 18.10 indicates that they had searched throughout the known world to find Elijah and to have him killed as part of that purge. Elijah emerges from hiding at God's direction where he is praying intensely for the people of God, James tells us, and he moves to that great confrontation of Ahab and the prophets of Baal that occurs at Mount Carmel, uh, and we read that in 1 Kings 18. There had also been an attempt to establish the worship of Baal, Ashtoreth, and Moloch. And one of the things that we can overlook, we can forget, This was not just bowing down to some kind of wooden or metal idol. This was a worship of a false god that had as its central part the ritual sacrifice by fire of young infant children. Keep that in mind as we read or understand what had happened at Carmel. These were not just kindly mistaken, misguided liberal scholars, these were executioners that had the blood of unknown children, unknown numbers of children on their hands. After approximately three and a half years, Ahab comes out. After about three and a half years, Elijah comes out of seclusion. He challenges Ahab and the prophets of Baal to go to the Mount Carmel. At that point in time, fire emerges from heaven, 
not in response to the prophets of Baal, but in response to the intense prayer of Elijah himself. At that point in time, it is very likely that he was the only remaining prophet of God in all of Israel. Not only that, not only that, Elijah supervises and is personally involved in the execution of 450 false prophets of Baal, possibly even more if prophets of Ashtoreth and Moloch were also there. Any of you who have ever been involved in armed combat know the incredible drain on an individual that can take place in hand-to-hand combat to the death with one man, let alone 450. After that, after that, the scripture tells us he runs ahead of a team of horses hauling Ahab's chariot for a distance closely approximating today's marathon. He wakes up the next day and Jezebel has sent a messenger to him, whether she's playing uh, a psychological manipulative game, which is possible, uh, or breathing out a very real threat, we're not sure. But she threatens Elijah that within a day or within a very short period of time, he would be as one of the prophets of Baal. Put another way, she was going to have him killed as well. Uh, Again, one of the examples of the hardening of her heart. Elijah, and we sometimes are way too hard on Elijah, uh, takes the threat seriously and he takes off running. He may very well have experienced what we would today call a sample of post-traumatic stress disorder. Many of the symptoms uh, would be somewhat similar. Uh, But to say the least, after 45 days, he finds himself fatigued, perhaps a little bit discouraged, on the Mount Sinai, and he has a lengthy but very insightful conversation with Almighty God. Paul in Romans 11, verse 2 through 5, gives us, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, a summary of that conversation. It differs somewhat from what you would read in uh, 1 Kings 19. But he says, Paul uh, leads into it by the statement that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left. Very likely true. And there very likely may have been uh, the massacre of a large group of them after Elijah had confronted Ahab. They are seeking my life. He's pouring out his grief, his heart, his concern. This is a man who prays boldly but desperately, and God responds. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept, almost a play on words, you could say, I have left for myself 
7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You look in uh, 1 Kings and you read 7,000 people. Here it indicates 7,000 men, possibly even more when you take into account women and children. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Jezebel had set up this revelation of God's description of his remnant in the pages of Scripture. Now, what do we know about this remnant? They are kept, they are left by God's choice. They are kept, they had been left by God's grace. Here you have God's two most hated doctrines, according to Dr. MacArthur. Sovereign election, you have God's choice at work. And total depravity, they are kept, they are left by God's grace. Nothing they could do, nothing that they did of their own effort would cause them to remain as part of that remnant. It is the work of God within them. So even from the outset, you have sovereign election and total depravity. Now, again, those are probably two of the most hated doctrines in all of Scripture. And it, in and of itself, that combination explains why there is always going to be a tremendous animosity directed against the people of God. The evil one persecutes us. Those who are not believers, and some of us remember this from before we became Christians, out of wounded pride, wounded ego, ego, we will prosecute, we will persecute the people of God. They had not bowed the knee to Baal. Three aspects. They had not endorsed the lordship of Baal. They had not given obedience or obeisance to a god. He was the god of agricultural prosperity in the Phoenician-Sidonian culture. In refusing to provide him that obedience, what they are stating is that economic prosperity is not the most important thing to me. Ahab had sold himself to do evil. The remnant refused to prostitute themselves to economic prosperity. Add to that, they had not engaged in the ritual sacrifice of infants. That sacrifice, by the way, is described three times in Jeremiah with the unique phrase, this was beyond what I had thought. It had never even entered my mind. You have an omniscient God saying that the horror of that evil was so great that I hadn't even thought about it. I hadn't even conceived of it. We know from the totality of the description of God's character that it is a figure of speech, and yet it speaks to how how evil that practice was. The remnant was pro-life. The remnant love and are committed to the word 
and the lordship of the triune God. And this is always encouraging to us. There are more of the remnant than are known to the eye of man. Elijah most likely himself had no clue that there were that many people who had not bowed the knee to Baal, who had not bowed the knee to Jezebel and Ahab, who were still in the people of God. Now, open your Bible, if you will. Uh, we'll be walking through this on the screen. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 21, 1 through 24. Uh, we will, after we read through this, we'll look at an extremely important postscript that appears in 2 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings 21, 1 through 24. Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezebel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place, if you like. I will give you the price in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Put another way, the Lord has forbidden that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth is, in fact, referring to the law of Israel at this time, which said that property could only be owned in life estate. It was to be still in your tribe and still in your family. It belonged to God. You had the privilege of using it for a period of time. Naboth knew that, and he refused the king. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's, He lay down on his bed, and he turned away his face and ate no food. Those of you that uh, have had the privilege of being parents know that this is exactly what we would describe as a pouting temper tantrum. Now his wife wants to find out what's going on. So she says to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? What's wrong? And we can understand how basic to the human family this conversation becomes. So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel said to him, Don't you now reign over Israel? Do you now reign over Israel? Aren't you king? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I'll take care of the problem. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And she proceeds to do exactly that. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast 
and seat Naboth at the head of the people. What are we talking about here? A fast, and you'll find this discussed in the MacArthur Study Bible, when there was a period of crisis, where there was a time of uh, a concern about something that was going to happen in the future, the people would have a time of seeking the face of God, a time of fasting, a time of prayer, a time of confession of sin, purging the evil that was within their midst. And she knew this. She knew the practices of the people of God well enough to call for this to happen. And see two worthless men before him and let them testify against him, saying, you cursed God and the king. You can almost hear the phrase, God and country. Okay? Uh, Be careful when you hear people hiding behind cultural American Christianity. That is exactly what is taking place here. You cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city, did exactly as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. He's the reason we've had to experience the potential conflict, the potential punishment that causes this fast to be necessary. She's manipulating and contriving all the way through this process. They took Naboth out and they executed him immediately. Uh, The method by doing so was the process that was used at the time of stoning an individual. He would be made to come to the center of what was really nothing more than uh, a rink where they would gather around and throw rocks at him until he was dead. Then they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but is dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he arose and he went down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. But that isn't the end of the story. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. It's interesting to speculate whether Elijah knew of any of this before the word of the Lord came to him. Very likely he didn't. But the word of the Lord came to him, and he went forward. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Now watch this, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood 
even yours. Now, this is followed This is followed by the confrontation between Ahab and Elijah. Ahab says to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. I already mentioned this to you. Elijah confronts him and he says, You've prostituted yourself. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Besha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. That's not all. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of the heaven will eat. The scripture then gives a a diagnosis of Ahab and Jezebel. Surely there was no one like Ahab, and you find this in verse 25 and 26, who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because Jezebel, his wife, had incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. Keep in mind, had he been in compliance with the law of God, he never would have married Jezebel in the first place. The scripture made very clear that the kings of Israel were not to marry foreign wives. He'd already seen the danger that this could cause in the life of Solomon. Now there is a fake, there is something of a pseudo-repentance that takes place, but God even in his grace, uh, responded to that. Verse 27 says, It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Subsequent events demonstrate that this is not a complete, total repentance, but God in his grace responds and honors even this expression of humiliation. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days." I turn over in your Bible, if you will, to 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. This is an extremely important postscript. This occurs uh, at the time when Jehu uh, is carrying out a coup d'etat uh, against the house of Ahab. It's after Ahab has passed away, uh, and Ahab's son, Joram, uh, is on the throne at the time. 
Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms. I love the graphic description the scripture sometimes gives us. It says, the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. Graphic in the sense that it gives you the detail of what occurred. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab, his father, most likely Jehu uh, and Bidkar had been on the guard of the king when Elijah confronted him. And they give us a little bit extra as to what had been stated in the prophecy. I remember when you and I were writing together after Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. In other words, toss the body into the property where the prophet had said, he should go. The interesting thing here, however, is that not only was Naboth executed, his sons, we don't know how many, his sons were executed as well at that particular same time. Why? Because as I've indicated, the law of the land at the time was that the property belonged to the family. Had he passed, Had Naboth been executed, the property would have passed on to his sons and most likely the oldest son by the custom of primogeniture, the oldest son taking the family estate. But Jezebel knew this. She understood the process, and so she arranged for the sons to also be executed, most likely at the same time and in the same location. God knew this. Now, who is this guy Naboth? We know a lot about Ahab. We know a lot about Jezebel. Not as much as we're going to know by the end of the session. Uh, but it's interesting to take a time to take some time and think through just who is this man, Naboth. What do we know about him? First of all, we know that he was a hardworking and skilled farmer and vintner. He knew the process of farming. He knew the process of establishing and setting up a productive vineyard. He knew what it was to properly make wine at the time. He was a family man. And we also know that he was a father. We've just been told that his sons were executed with him at the same time. Was he a good dad? Probably. We don't know for sure, uh, but it would flow from the other things that we do know about him. He knew the law of God. We've already established that. He couldn't sell his property. He was unable to do so under the law of God. And he was willing to say no to that which God had prohibited And I need a little bit of help, if I can, from my technical department. 
I'll continue talking, and hopefully you'll be able to join me uh, momentarily through the slides. One of the things that is most uh, remarkable about Ahab... He was willing to say no to that which God had said no. My daughter-in-law, my son are here, and one of the things that I've communicated to my uh, kids as they are parenting, teach the kids to say no to that which God says no to. Teach the kids to say yes to that which God says yes to. Naboth, he had that character quality. Tough-minded. I love that part. I love that aspect of an individual. Tough-minded. They're willing to accept the consequences. He had the courage to say no to the king. He knew, he should have sensed, uh, that there would be hell to pay, figuratively speaking, uh, in the time to come. It is very likely that he was not at all surprised what happened when Jezebel orchestrated his sham trial. He was very likely not at all surprised uh, when he found himself going through the process of being executed. Tremendous courage on the part of this man. Now, one of the reasons we study this is to learn to be increasingly encouraged in our grasp of God's omniscient sovereignty. What Jezebel thought she was doing in secret, God fully knew about. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and of his sons, and I will repay you in this property. God was omniscient. Nothing had taken him by surprise. He was totally sovereign. He would rule over it as he saw fit. When you think about it, we get discouraged, we get frustrated. Those of you that have seen the movie, The Essential Church, we know that the church has, from the time of the beginning, been persecuted. It will continue. We get discouraged, we get frustrated when we doubt one of two things, God's omniscience or his sovereignty. Okay? We see both in place, and we should be encouraged as we are reminded of the reality of that. It goes on to say, and this again is the passage in uh, 1 Kings 21, he tells Elijah, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, the king of Israel. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered? Have you also taken possession? It's interesting The conduct of his wife, this speaks to the headship of the husband in a home, is attributed to Ahab. He most likely had no knowledge of it at the time. Dads and husbands, we have a responsibility before God. You shall speak to him, saying, and we've seen the comment, thus says the Lord in the place where the dog licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. 
We also see God's omniscient sovereignty in the death of Ahab. Scripture tells us of an account later on, approximately three years later, Ahab and the king of Judah, Judea, go out together to battle against another power. They're fighting together. Uh, For whatever reason, the king of Judah, who was sometimes way too trusting, a man by the name of Jehoshaphat, agrees to go out in full battle uniform. Ahab, on the other hand, goes out in disguise. He's fighting, but he's fighting in plain clothes, if you will. He's not wearing his uniform. It's a factor that uh, really makes his death extremely unlikely. He is fully armed. During the custom of the time, he had armor all over him. There was a small chink or a gap in that armor, however. Before he had gone, uh, they had attempted to obtain a prophecy concerning the outcome, and a man by the name of Micaiah, who we know little about, had prophesied that Ahab would die in the upcoming battle. Sure enough, the passage tells us that a, quote, random, unquote, and I, that's in my own terms, not the scripture, arrow is shot into the air by an enemy archer. The arrow falls and lands in the gap in Ahab's armor. Very strategic point. The passage tells us uh, that over the rest of the day, Ahab quite literally bleeds to death. Blood is in his chariot. It eventually falls out of the chariot precisely onto the field where the prophecy had been made that dogs would lick his blood. The death of Jezebel. During the coup d'etat I was telling you about, Jehu uh, leads an attack. This is after, by some period of time, uh, on the palace. Jezebel has put on her makeup. So she's dressed in the nines, if you will. She's standing at the window. She looks down and she contemptuously calls Jehu by the name of a man who had led a rebellion that had been totally unsuccessful and had fallen apart after a week. To the end, she demonstrated that cynical contempt uh, that she had shown throughout her life. Contemptuous of others to the end, she insults the leader of the coup by calling him the name of a former uh, unsuccessful coup leader, Uh, as she most likely had treated her attendants with that same level of contempt, it comes as no surprise when Jehu looks up and he says, okay, who's with me? If you're with me, throw her out of the window. He didn't have to ask twice. (laughs) To no one's surprise, the attendants join the coup and throw her out of the window. Now, At this point, I've got to give you the vocabulary word of the day. Defenestration. D-E-F-E-N-E-S-T-R-A-T-I-O-N. Defenestration. 
a fancy word that one of you suggested I needed to work in somehow that basically means nothing more and nothing less than being executed by being thrown out of a window. (laughs) Defenestration. But God was sovereign in all of this. The uh, leaders of the rebellion went inside. Uh, They'd been successful. They had captured the palace. And they decided to do what guys will will do in that kind of a situation. They said, okay, I'm hungry. Let's sit down. And they had a feast. They had stuff to drink. And then it occurred to them that something needed to be done about the body of Jezebel. So they went outside to look for it. And when they did, they found that there was nothing left except some bones. Her skull, uh, and I believe her hands. What had happened? Precisely as prophesied, a pack of wild dogs had eaten the body. God's omniscient sovereignty is at work even in that situation. Our biblical anthropology, our knowledge of man, don't ever underestimate the evil of which men and women are capable. Uh, It was commonplace, and you'll find this more in the Arminian perspective, uh, at times for Christians to say, I believe in the basic good of men. Well, it is true that men and women, even after the fall, are still created in the image of God. But it is also true that they have been infected, they have been ingested with a potential for sin, with a taint in their character and their personality, the extent of which we do not fully understand in this life that will potentially make even the best of us capable of an incredible amount of evil. Jezebel and Ahab both demonstrate that. Jezebel is cynical, contemptuous, manipulative, She is the daughter of an idolatrous murderer, a man by the name of Ethbaal, who had become king by carrying out murder. This was up in Sidonia. She is the mother of a woman, Athaliah, uh, who married the daughter of Jehoshaphat and attempts to stamp out the Messianic line in Judah, also by murder. She's the daughter of a murderer. She's the mother of a murderer. So when she did what she did, she was carrying on a family tradition. She is a daughter of Satan. John 8, 44. He was a liar. He was a murderer. Jesus used that description of the Pharisees. It just as easily, just as accurately fits Jezebel. Ahab. He is a weak king. He is cowardly at times, and I've already described how he went out to battle trying to get another king uh, to distract people from him. And again, twice the scriptures say he sold himself, he prostituted himself to do evil. When it happens again in our time, don't let it take you by surprise. Together, they both demonstrate the truth. And lest we be caught up in thinking that we are really better than we are, 
Titus 3.3 tells us that we all, but for the grace of God, would find ourselves in similar character. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Biblical anthropology. The perversion of worship She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. Seat two worthless men before him. Let them testify against him saying, You cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. She knew the worship practices of the people of God. We've already established that. We've already been talking about that. The MacArthur Study Bible note for 1 Kings 16.31 She is symbolic of the evil of false religion. You go on into Revelation. She is the name given to the individual in the church at Thyatira, the false teacher there who was inciting the people away from the word of God. She is symbolic of the evil of false religion. She has been since the time of her existence. But there's more. The perversion of government also takes place. Uh, you have in front of you Romans 13, 1 through 5, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14. The purpose of government, the fundamental purposes of government, there are more, uh, but the fundamental basic purposes of government are to commend that which is good, and to punish that which is evil. Jezebel, and under her influence, Ahab, do exactly the contrary. They punish that which is good, and they promote that which is evil and diabolical. Jezebel and Ahab had used the government to establish Baal worship with the sacrifice of an untold number of human infants, and to obtain the death of an unknown number of prophets of the true God. It's also interesting to note that the text tells us that she used the stationery of the king, their counterpart to our letterhead, and the seal of the king to co-opt the local government and to obtain the death of Naboth and his sons. She perverted the purpose of the national government. She also co-opted and perverted the purpose of the local government. John Knox, one of my heroes, uh, one of the greatest leaders in the Reformation, uh, the individual who was probably most prominent in establishing uh, the Reformation in Scotland, wrote a book titled The First Trumpet Blast Against the Monstrous Regime of Women. He was writing that uh, with regards to the woman known to history as Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor, Mary Stewart. Uh, Mary Stewart, and we're having a problem again. Mary Stewart had... Do you want to help me out again? 
Mary Stewart had gone and had something like 300 pastors, 300 people who loved Christ and who were following the true Reformed worship. Uh, She had had them executed, most likely, most often by being burnt at the stake. All right, we'll we'll just continue as is. Uh, We'll see if the PowerPoint can be reestablished, but we'll go forward. Looks like we're back in place. They had suborned, they had perverted the purpose of government destroyed the purpose of government in their context. Knox cites Jezebel repeatedly as indicative of Mary Tudor, Mary Stewart. Truth is destroyed. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Isaiah 59, verses 3 through 4, 14 through 15, describes the importance of of truth in the judicial process. 2 Corinthians 13.8, we can do nothing against the truth. In contrast, Jezebel and Ahab had promoted the worship of false gods. We saw that earlier. Not only that, she had orchestrated perjury. She had orchestrated perjury in a prosecution for blasphemy. Blasphemy at the time was a capital offense. And she obtained a conviction for that and the execution of the individual uh, based on that. Incidentally, for what it's worth, under California Penal Code today, uh, it's still the case that obtaining a conviction for a capital crime by perjury is also a capital offense. Justice was perverted. She had co-opted the elders, the judges, away from the scrutiny required by Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 19. That passage tells us that criminal justice is so important to God that when you have a serious crime, the facts behind the conviction of that crime are to be confirmed by multiple witnesses. We see that uh, in Matthew 18, which we talked about in the first hour Uh, incorporated into the process of church discipline. Jezebel dictated the desired result. She told the judges what they needed to do. There was no opportunity for the right of habeas corpus, no opportunity for any of uh, uh, Naboth's relatives to say, hey, look, why is this happening? There was no time to prepare a defense. He immediately is accused, convicted, and executed. No opportunity for review or for an appeal. Murder was obtained through false testimony, and it occurred at the work, at the orchestration, at the bidding of a daughter of Satan. Again, John 8, 44. 
The legal system is used to obtain the illegal and fraudulent acquisition of property following multiple executions obtained through and by perjured testimony. The destruction of human rights. What are we talking about? And I'm going to give you a number of them that we see destroyed, violated in this instance. And you'll see on the screen... Oh, well, we persevere. Uh, Two sites after each one. The United States Constitution Amendment and citations to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? It is a basic provision of international law. I threw them both in, tossed them both in, because these uh, recordings at times go far and wide. Uh, It may mean something more significant to individuals outside of the United States if I have the UDHR as cited as well. The right to life. U.S. Constitution Amendment 14, no one is to be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Those children had been deprived of life. Are we back together again? We'll keep going. Uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Articles 3 and Article 11. The right to property. There is a right to property in the Scripture. Government... Uh, and Calvin points this out in his Institutes. One of the purposes of governance to protect legitimate right claims to property ownership. Leviticus twenty-five twenty-three had indicated that uh, property was to be owned by individuals in a term of life, only in a term of life, and they had this right because God wanted to maintain intimate fellowship with His people. The word tells us, and this is always to be considered when you consider human rights, these are my people. You are not to oppress one another. The right to property was uh, attacked by Jezebel. The Fourth and Fifth Amendments to the United States Constitution, as well as the Fourteenth Amendment, uphold the right to property in our country. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights Uh, Sections 12 and 17 do the same on the international level. The right to due process, due process of law. What is due process of law? At its core, the U.S. Supreme Court has indicated it consists in two things, notice and the right to be heard. Now, you have an interesting quote, interesting question uh, in John chapter 7, verse 51 Nicodemus is uh, basically, he at this point in time is most likely a true believer in Christ. He's hearing discussion attacking Christ in the Sanhedrin, and he interrupts the process. He says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Does it? His question basically says, we believe in what we would call today due process. Notice and the right to be heard. That notice implicitly indicates that there is going to be enough time to prepare 
to respond, to prepare a valid defense. Jezebel sure did not give Naboth that kind of due process of law. Ram him out to the field of execution as quickly as we possibly can. The right to due process was not carried out. Uh, In our American law, the Fifth and Sixth Amendments to the United States Constitution, as well as the Fourteenth Amendment, enact that. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you have Articles 10 and 11. The right to a fair and impartial trial. A fair and impartial trial. What Naboth experienced, uh, we would refer to as something of an, on the order of a kangaroo court. Okay? In parts of our country at times, people would be executed by the process of lynching. To all of us, it should carry a certain amount of pain just to even bring up the subject. Naboth was effectively lynched. He did not have the right to a fair and impartial trial uh, that he should have received under Amendments 5, 6, and 14 to our Constitution or under Sections 10 and 11 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is interesting. We have the right to be protected from inappropriate punishment. The American Constitution... The Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. In this case, Naboth's sons were being executed. Why? For Naboth's sin. And this goes contrary to what was called for uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Fathers were not to be executed for the sins of the sons. Sons were not to be executed for the sins of the fathers. She totally contravenes that. It's interesting, and I have on the screen the phrase Sippenhaft. That is the phrase used in Nazi Germany that we would translate into the liability of kin. This is not at all uncommon in pagan cultures. You see it uh, carried out in uh, the Empire of Persia. Read that in Daniel, where the families of men were thrown into the lion's den. The liability of kin. It was for this reason Dietrich Bonhoeffer and some of the relatives of the men who plotted against Hitler uh, were ultimately executed. Uh, Let me just retract that. Bonhoeffer was more involved, but some of the people that were uh, executed uh, were only executed because they were relatives of conspirators. But you have this taking place. Again, you depart from the word of God, you depart from the realization that government is to be accountable to God, human rights will evaporate. Probably, as I was working through this, one of the things that intrigued me the most about Jezebel was the hardening of her heart that took place. It's remarkable. She most likely is not at Carmel because it says she heard what had happened to the 450 prophets. She completely and totally ignores the failure of those prophets at Carmel. They had spent hours cutting themselves, working themselves into, dancing themselves into a frenzy, trying to get Baal to answer their prayer and send fire from heaven. Totally weakened, totally failed. 
She ignored that. She ignores God's answer by fire to Elijah's prayer. She ignores the fact that all of these prophets of Baal, Elijah and whoever he was able to have assist him, had totally executed. It doesn't have any effect upon her other than to make her angry and make her want to respond and retaliate. She also totally ignores the fact that at that same period of time, three and a half years of drought have ended. The passage tells us at the end of First uh, Kings 18 that they literally had virtually a flood, uh, an incredible outpouring of rain. God finally released the rain necessary to an agricultural economy. She ignores the fact, she refuses to give any attention or weight to the fact that Elijah knew what was going on, having been told by the sovereign omniscient God, and went to confront Ahab in that vineyard. You would think that some of these points Some of these, when she heard about them, would have had an impact in her mind and her thinking, but to no avail. She totally ignores it, totally chooses to disregard it. You would also think that the circumstances of Ahab's death, a guy fighting disguise, fully armored, one few chinks in his armor, a random arrow directed by a sovereign omniscient God is shot into the arrow. It comes down, it pierces his body at that location. He bleeds to death. You would think, ladies, if this happened to your husband, that you would want to ponder that and think about the significance of it, but it doesn't happen. In the hardening of her heart, it foreshadows the refusal to repent that is described in Revelation 9, chapter 20, chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, chapters, chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. Pray for me, guys, uh, that I'm able to finish this uh, and bring it home strong. I recently taught, had the privilege of teaching uh, and commissioned a lesson from Hebrews chapter 3 through 4. Three times, God says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Jezebel, if nothing else, provides an incredible example of what it is like to have a heart hardened. Now, we know from Scripture that no man can come to God, no man can come to Christ unless the Father draw him. She obviously was not drawn. And yet, the Scripture paradoxically also tells us that the opportunity presented by the gospel would have applied in her case and would have applied in Ahab's as well. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not let happen to you what happened to Jezebel. The offer of forgiveness, even to the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 16, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. He knew about Jezebel. 
He knew about Ahab. And yet he says, I am the chief of sinners. What I did was even worse than what they did. The offer of God's grace was made to Paul. He says, the fact that God saved me is an example to those who act in ignorance, to those who act in unbelief, to those who act with a hardened heart, and yet who are willing to repent, truly repent. Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You find this again, Joel 2, 32, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. I've read this earlier. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It may be that uh, uh, I say it's probably fairly unlikely in a group of this nature that some are here today who have not uh, fully trusted in Christ. Uh, It's not known what you are like, but God knows. And you may find the comparison to Ahab and to Jezebel much more uncomfortable than you would like to admit even to yourself. That offer of forgiveness, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, applies to you. What do we do with this? There are four takeaways. We speak in terms of what is the takeaway from this particular session, this particular topic. Uh, And there are four legitimate ones. For some, uh, if I have any uh, potential lawyers in the group, uh, any law students, uh, the fact of the matter is this may have been a session in which uh, you found it interesting to learn the potential perversion of human rights and the importance of human rights. That's an extremely important topic. And those of you, and there are some here who have lived in countries, parts of the world where human rights are totally disregarded, uh, this is a session in which we see the importance and we see how easily they can be perverted. For some, this is encouragement. God has sovereignly and omnisciently responded to the perversion of justice, government, and the human rights of his people. He will do so in the future. Uh, One of the great parables in the New Testament is chapter 18 of the Gospel of Luke. You have an individual described as an unjust judge, and he very likely properly merited that description. And he had a very persistent woman. And I can tell you, Uh, I think I met that woman a number of times during the years that I was working in the government. Um, It ends with a saying, will it not be the case, is it not certain that when the Son of Man comes, he will provide justice to all of his people? It is an absolute given, it is an absolute certainty that every bit of injustice since the time of Adam, will be rectified in one way or another uh, by Christ when he returns. For some of you, this may be a warning against the hardening of your hearts. Also, again, a very significant purpose of what we've been talking about this morning. Don't let your heart 
become hardened. For some of you, for some of you, uh, it may well be friends or relatives who you can see this taking place. Encourage them in keeping with Hebrews 3. Encourage them in keeping with Hebrews 4 not to succumb to the hardening of the heart. And again, finally, for some of you, this may be a time to repent, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. Let's close in prayer. On second thought, we have approximately 15 minutes, even with the technical problems that we had. Uh, If there are any questions uh, after we have prayed, I'll take them, uh, and we can continue for a few more minutes if desired. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word, the prophet Amos states, tells us your thoughts. Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing what you have thought, what you have stated in propositional truth, and understanding how this truth should be applied in our lives. Lord, I pray for each person here. Many of them I know. I know the way you have worked in their lives in time past. Some I do not. Father, I pray that you would continue to bless, to provide, to strengthen, and to encourage. Father, I pray that we would all continue to be part of the remnant chosen by God, kept by God, and who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Give us wisdom, Lord, in all we do. We trust you and we love you. Amen.